Hello, and welcome to The Quarantine, with me, Tim Smith-Lang. And me, Sophia Smith-Lang. This is a podcast for a world on lockdown. We'll be taking and giving recommendations for the best books, shows, films, and albums to keep you company in the long days ahead. Every week, we'll be talking to someone we know about what life is like in the new world order, and how you can keep yourself entertained without touching anything. We hope you enjoy the show. Theme tune! This is the theme tune to our podcast. Theme tune! Theme tune! Our guest this week is David Evans, a literary agent coming to us from Archway. Let's see if he's in. It worked! How are you doing, David? I'm doing well. I am here on my own, which is its own challenge, but I realise there are some people like you who are enclosed, imprisoned with each other, and that must be its own challenge. You know Tim, and you know me, so you can decide which one of us is suffering more. I'm just joking. I would I would be very happy to be imprisoned with you guys for weeks on end with no prospect of the lockdown ever being lifted. I feel like the friendly thing is to say likewise, but... (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about your situation, David. Where are you? What's it like? I am in my flat in Archway. I can get out and about on my bike, which is a godsend, and it's lovely, and spring's just started, so it's really nice to stretch my legs outside, although a bit worrying when you do go out, say, on a bank holiday weekend and see literally throngs of people all doing the same and congregating, and it all feels a bit like, did you guys not get the memo? I just feel like London is bringing everyone down, and... I apologise as one Londoner. Are you disappointed in the obedience of your concitoyens? I'm, I'm disappointed in their disobedience and I'm disappointed in a different way in my own obedience. I feel like a proper clean shirt. You're really going with the authoritarian line right now. I'm, I'm, I'm totally signed up to this, let's like hunker down get over it. It is funny how it brings out people's relationship to authority quite strongly. You can really suddenly tell who's, look, I have quite a strong sense of duty towards certain people and I don't want to spread it around, but also I'm not that worried about it. And then you have people who are truly eaten up by fear. And then you have people who are just obeying rules because they're rules and they're there to be obeyed. And other people who are like, rules, what are they? I mean, I've actually thought so far that people have been pretty good about it. Every time I've gone out, I've seen people staying two metres away. And the throngs of people in the parks are like a tenth of what it would be on a normal bank holiday weekend. That bank holiday weekend, those temperatures, all the pubs would have been full, all the parks would have been full, people would have been barbecuing. It wasn't like that, even if occasionally you had to kind of sidestep on a pavement to get round a jogger but it didn't feel like the mask of the red death or anything no i agree with that i mean it feels more like a nice winter's day that number of people out rather than a nice spring's day so where we're like we're about a season behind in uh, the population going out which is probably doing all right to be honest yeah i guess we just have to hope that that's enough I enjoy my dad's attitude to the lockdown. I don't know if you've had the same where you have to convince parents in a quite susceptible part of the population to stay in, stay safe, protect the NHS, etc, etc, etc. 
but he him as someone who is young in the 60s always has a bit of a rebellious streak he's desperate to find ways around these diktats he's like but can i do x y or z He's like, I want to know exactly the letter of the law so that I can start using the Cyrillic alphabet instead. Is exactly that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How has your work life been affected? I work as a literary agent. I think the transition to working from home for a lot of literary agencies has perhaps been embarrassingly smooth. Why weren't we doing this as much as we're doing now anyway? Publishing in general, a bit more tricky. I feel like publishers are having a difficult time and they're furloughing a lot of staff, which agencies aren't, but I guess they're smaller outfits anyway. So it's easier for agencies to, to keep operating. I'm optimistic. People still want books. Publishers still want us to send them projects. We're still looking for projects. So fingers crossed. Profound questions, profound people, profound questions coming We're going to enter something called the profound round. This is so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. And we're going to ask you a series of seven questions based on the Proust questionnaire. Because just like you, he did not leave his house. I feel like I should have done some preparation for this. I haven't done any preparation of profundity. The preparation is being you. That's what I'm worried about. Questions begin now. What do you most appreciate in your friends? It could be their stroke hour looks, their stroke hour funniness, kindness, hairstyles, dress sense, taste in music, taste in literature, coolness, the fact that you look up to and respect some of them, particularly male ones with big red beards, anything. David's just got his tongue stuck between his teeth. Like a seven-year-old girl trying to do a maths problem. Easygoingness. When you're with a true friend, you feel comfortable to say almost anything that comes into your mind. You know that there won't be so much judgment about what you're saying. You have a wealth of history with that person where you can be totally open with them and they'll accept everything you say and respond to it in, in that attitude. David's saying this because once he confessed to me that he's physically attracted to dogs. <laughs> I was gonna say it sounds like you have some dark confessions that you want them to accept. No but I know what you mean. Why do you choose to be friends with anyone? It's just because you don't feel discomfort around them as people often do with each other. I always think it's a mark of a very intimate easy relationship when you can be quiet around someone and not feel awkward or like you have to fill that silence. I agree with that. Maybe a different way to put what I was trying to say of easygoingness of not being obliged or needing to put up a facade in any way, not being desperate to impress, not being desperate to be cool, being desperate to be funny, just knowing if those things come, they'll come. But you, your relationship with that person is not of the sort where you have to pretend to be someone you're not. You'll still be valued even if you're not your best self in any given moment. Exactly. So you're, the thing you appreciate most in your friends is that you don't need to be funny cool or interesting around them great question two <laughs> question two what do you think your friends most appreciate about you my ability to not take things too seriously 
the ability to be silly when things are serious or turn silly things into something serious, that sort of like going between tones. I enjoy that. I enjoy interacting like that with other people and I appreciate it when they respond to that. Question three, what do you think your friends deplore about you? What is it Tim calls me? I know the word I'm thinking of. Yeah, what is that word? It's not shady. <laughs> Go on, you say it. You've got the right vowels. It might remind you of a Maya Angelou book. Some people have called me a cagey motherfucker. I think, to, to put it more simply, a perceived caginess, aloofness, or, and this is probably the most annoying one, lack of communication. I will neither confirm nor deny. Assassinating characters one friend at a time. What is your idea of happiness? Opening my balcony doors on a hot spring afternoon when the sun is out, feeling the breeze coming in, sitting down, feet up with a book and a glass of something. We might be in lockdown, but things suddenly feel kind of all right. That's a very good choice. And I'm really glad that you didn't say ending this conversation, which is what I was worried you would. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really wise. Focus on the, the joy of small things. I'm glad that your idea of happiness is something so attainable in the moment. Yeah, good, huh? Man of simple pleasures. Yeah, exactly. If your idea of happiness were travel, unfortunately, you would not be able to fulfill it. But if you could go anywhere right now, where would you go? I have a really weird desire to go somewhere in the Arctic Circle. (laughs) To be even more alone? Yeah, a bit perverse in the current moment, but it's it's a desire that, that existed before all of this nonsense, so I feel like it's an honest answer. What is it about the Arctic that fires your imagination? I think I like extreme environments, the absolute peak of the world, very harsh environment. Given that I live in a city, things that can be quite mundane, centred around humans and their daily doings and when you get somewhere very isolated and remote I just find that interesting to see the extremes of the natural world which probably touches on that idea of the sublime. I've always wanted to see the northern lights. I think Svalbard is a good compromise. A very northern island which approaches the Arctic Circle but at least you've still got some mod-ish cons rather than being totally out in the world. I think there is a Jeff Dyer essay in White Sands where he goes to Svalbard to see the Northern Lights and if I remember correctly he doesn't get to see them and he's just really fucking cold and that (laughs) is the essay. It was a a disappointment on every possible level and he understood for the first time that he had never, ever, ever been cold. Ever. Well, I look forward to walking in Jeff Dyer's footprints in the White Sands. Which pre-corona freedom do you miss the most? I don't want this to sound weird out of context, but just physical contact. You're not the first person to say it. I mean, I don't even mean that in like an amorous way or anything like that, but just being close to people, like say being in a bar and just like, I don't know, nudging past people, being with your mates and like sort of like hugging or whatever. It's it is not a thing I thought I would miss, but it turns out, you know, several weeks later, 
in more or less isolation that is part of our normal human life i wonder whether after lockdown especially british society which is so protective of its personal space is suddenly going to be like oh fine yeah just bump into me it's okay I'll get on this incredibly crowded tube. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be nice to touch some strangers. I'm foreseeing some sort of 1960s style flower child love in hugathon type events where people just touch each other en masse to make up for the months of social distancing. Dear God, please no. I'm not going to sign up for that. I feel like this has made us reflect so much on national character, which Brexit also did. And I just, I can't remember the time in my life when I didn't have daily meditations on the essential nature of the British or the Americans or the French or the Italians or whoever. It's kind of exhausting. I feel like that would be a sign that things had stabilized in the world if you weren't just prompted at every juncture to be like, oh, is it because of their stereotypical national character that this is happening? Yeah, I agree. What, so what is our stereotypical national character that is being played out in the media at the moment? The Blitz spirit. It's a war. Only this time it's not the Jerry's. It's a virus. And damned if our boys in blue won't bomb it right out of the air. COVID-19's gonna go for a Burton, Johnny. He'll be crashing in flames in the fields of Kent before you can say jobs and uncle. I did really like Marina Hyde's line in The Guardian a week or two ago saying something like, Plague is his own horseman of the apocalypse. He doesn't need to hitch a ride with war. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's, let's leave it be this blip spirit, but let's keep an eye on it for after this all dies down. It would be nice to have something we were proud of that wasn't World War Two. Final question. If you could have any meal right now, what would it be and whom would you eat it with? Well, I was thinking last weekend it would have been really nice to have a kind of Easter roast, maybe with some lamb, roast potatoes, veg, and I would have it with my girlfriend, who I am living very far apart from at the moment she's in scotland and i'm in london and it would be really nice to have a easter roast lunch with her a fine choice we had an easter zoom with our families and it was a lot of people yeah it's difficult to do easter lunch virtually is what we discovered what Now it's time to talk recommendations. So what are we all meant to do in between exercising and longing for people to rub up against in a bar? David has some suggestions for what we might like to watch, read and listen to over the coming weeks and perhaps months of lockdown. Let's start with telly. David, what do you think people should be watching in self-isolation? I have found the most recent series of the BBC comedy This Country. It's weirdly reassuring. Set in a provincial town, it follows these two young cousins around as they essentially do nothing. They're more or less loitering around their, their small uh, town. And at a time when we're all stuck away in our homes, in my case, in, in the city, stuck away, it's nice that there's a reminder that there's 
an outside world, rolling fields with people doing stupid things, loitering, not just being outside in order to have a daily constitutional or cycle or whatever, but just sitting, doing nothing, being silly, messing around with your mates. Great. A lot of people now have the time to do the being silly part, but not the people or the space to do it in. There's also an idea of community in this series where they're young in a town where the population is quite elderly, and yet they seem to have a relationship with everyone in town. They seem to know them. There's a sense of community, even if they don't always get on. And again, that's kind of something we're we're missing at the moment. I find it reassuring. I find it warm, and I find it... Yeah, just nice. It's comforting. It's a show that uh, reminded me of Detectorists, about which I felt exactly the way you feel about this country. Detectorists is just an amazing show with Mackenzie Crook from The Office. And it's almost exactly that kind of thing. First of all, sort of a hymn to the English countryside when it's looking nice. And second of all, a hymn to small communities where not a lot is going on. And the pleasures that people enjoy are kind of regular and cyclical and things like watching University Challenge and never getting a question on it in their case. Or in the case of this country, the Scarecrow Festival. And I can see why that's comforting. For my part, I barely made it through a single episode of this country. I was intensely bored, nearly to death. I found it incredibly boring. So boring. To be fair, David's words should probably be taken above ours because we only watched the pilot. Because it was so boring. (laughs) But I, I am interested to hear you say that you found it warm because my impression from the pilot was that it was quite mean-spirited and just sort of the comedy was all watching stupid people be stupid but does it grow and change and acquire depth over the course of the whole series exactly it does all those things the characters become more nuanced they're not just knockabout slapstick figures they have backgrounds their relationships develop i feel like that's such a classic move in british TV in British comedy is starting a series in a place where basically every character is just kind of hateful (laughs) for one reason or another but it's sort of funny watching them be in conflict with their absurd personalities and then slowly slowly in very tiny degrees over the course of a whole show by the end it will be this quite sweet loving farewell to people that you shouldn't like, but somehow have wormed their way into your heart. Finding what's lovable in unlovable people is a note that I see a lot in this show. And then also it really reminded me of The Office and that's definitely the arc of the British version of The Office. And the arc of our friendship with David. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe if you say that's the evolution of this country, I might be willing to stick with the sort of embarrassment and crassness of it to see how it brings out what is beautiful about these fairly unprepossessing human spirits that we've been introduced to in the first episode. Your book recommendation, what have you been reading in lockdown? I've been jumping between a lot of different things. I've been finding it hard to have the attention span to alight on one book for a long time. But I've I've read, in a very cliched way, The Plague by Camus, which is something I thought I should have read long ago. Um, Amazingly 
prescient for what we're living through. It's almost like a blow-by-blow account of each stage of a pandemic and a lockdown. At the beginning, it's almost like a party atmosphere. Everyone's drinking quite a lot and forgetting about it. And then suddenly the ennui sets in. Then there's the idea of volunteer groups springing up, like as we have with people helping the NHS. Then suddenly we're transported into narrative of mass graves and things like that. And I just thought... It's incredibly well observed. I don't think he ever lived through a plague himself. He just researched it quite meticulously. And that's why it rings so true at the moment. The things I'm really hopping between are Lydia Davis's essays and her short stories, which are great for illuminating each other. Can you fill us in a little bit on who Lydia Davis is for anyone who doesn't really know? I would say she's best known as a short story writer and translator and now essayist. Her short stories aren't necessarily traditional short stories with the structure of something like Chekhov or Joyce or the classic. Her area is between very short almost poems and longer short stories and so they're short short stories or long poems something like that and the kind of the aesthetic is more of the aesthetic of a poem where lots of different symbols or images are resonating with each other in a slightly intangible sort of way rather than being plot-based. As a translator, I think she translated Proust, amongst other things, and she's a real stylist. I think that's a very good description of her. And to illustrate it, we're going to read a couple of her very short, short stories, which David picked out as particular favourites. First is Odd Behaviour. You see how circumstances are to blame. I am not really an odd person if I put more and more small pieces of shredded Kleenex in my ears and tie a scarf around my head. When I lived alone, I had all the silence I needed. And the second one that David recommended was Spring Spleen. I am happy the leaves are growing large so quickly. Soon they will hide the neighbour and her screaming child. I mean, those are two perfect ones for the coronavirus age, right? They truly are. <laughs> they truly are. I remember when we're feeling lonely, or I can see a time at the other side of this when we'll keep our slightly solipsistic mindsets for a while afterwards. And equally, at this point, when we're locked away from each other and feel like we maybe need company, I think other people can really flip and annoy us. <laughs> Certainly other people's noises. Tell us a bit about spleen, David. Spleen. The meaning of spleen, because it's not a word we use much in English. Lydia Davis is a translator from French predominantly, and it's a very French term, one with which you, I feel, are particularly familiar. I know it as a main theme in the poet Charles Baudelaire's work. His poetry goes between spleen and ideal, ideal being this transcendent poetic flight or perhaps drug-induced, and spleen being the real sort of mundane ennui of everyday existence. Just like a, a feeling not not at ease with the world, feeling everything is kind of going against you. It's kind of like a slightly depressive mindset. Does it date back to old humour theory? Is that where it's wound up in French from? The, the splenetic personality is someone who has spleen in excess quantities? I think that's where it's from. 
as far as I know, and this could be wrong, I think Baudelaire took it from the English. So in French, I think it sounds as a slightly foreign term. And so in a way, we're, we're linguistically close to spleen than they are. It's interesting that you noted seeing it in Lydia Davis's story, it reminded you of the French, because I think she's really... Her translation and her writing are so perfectly twinned and in both of them her major virtue I think is her total patient observation. She has lots of stories, one of the ones that you picked out is called Cockroaches in Autumn which is basically a series of observations of cockroaches in a house that she's staying in, all sort of one or two sentences with blank space between them on the page that goes on for a few pages and she has a story in a later collection called Can't and Won't and the story is about cows and it's maybe a dozen or twenty pages of observations about cows and occasionally the these things, I really like Lydia Davis, but it can occasionally verge onto the boring because she's so particular and so minute in her observation. But that's also what allows her to almost break through to the other side sometimes and achieve this almost sort of zen insight or transcendent humor by allowing herself to sink totally into what she's seeing and then break through to this clarity. And I think that really characterizes her translation as well, which is truly incredible. She is, I think, the best translator whose work I've ever had the ability to compare to the original. And she's incredibly gifted at giving exactly the flavour that was there to begin with. Again, it's because she has that ability to just deeply focus, take as long as it takes, be patient in her observation to the point of total boredom, but then she breaks through and finds the perfect word that no other translator would have. And I think there's something interesting that you talk about her obsessive observational streak. And actually, in the essay you recommended to us, David, 30 recommendations for writing, they're all about observation and knowledge and knowing things and noting things down and recognising Things like the linguistic magic of a dictionary definition of the Beaufort scale. Or, you know, what in England we think of as the instantly recognisable poetry of the shipping forecast. You just know Dogger, Fisher, German Bite. And what's interesting about that is it's just reality. And yet she's an incredibly surreal writer. And that's kind of what she's famous for, is this brand of observation that is so close that reality becomes almost unrecognisable under the microscope of it, becomes numinously odd. If you take it one step further, you maybe end up with the stories of Diane Williams, where it's truly surreal. The, the links of rationality have, at points in those also very short, short stories, been really snipped in a way where Lydia Davis stretches but doesn't necessarily break the point to which observation can take you. She says this in her essay and I think it, it's borne out in her stories. There's just a curiosity for everything, noting things down, little quirks of language, etymologies or things that she's overheard or emails that she's got, just like little snippets from them that are all snippets from reality but she realises that 
all of these things, there's joy in them. And if they're taken out of context and rearranged in a certain way as fragments, they can play off against each other. And she's, she's almost curating linguistic reality in order to make these dramatic things that are ultra precise in their descriptions, but seem to resonate beyond. It's a beautiful way of putting it. And the essay you were talking about, the one paragraph I ended up highlighting, which I really liked because it puts its finger on a, a horror I feel in my own writing of simply not knowing enough. Not just that thing that people often talk about of experience and lived experience and writing what you know, but knowledge in a much more kind of hard grind, trivia sense. And she says, note facts. As a writer, whether you're writing fiction, non-fiction or poetry, you must be responsible for accurate factual information about how a thing works, if you're writing about it. You will have to be well informed about such things as the weather, biology, botany, human nature, history, technology, such matters as colour spectrums and the behaviour of light waves, etc, etc. Which I believe is absolutely right and a horrible responsibility and task to have to bear. I love how meticulous she is about everything. You know, I've been talking about her being meticulous, but she's also very funny. Well, in a very dry way. And like in her essays, there are notes of humility. It's not just all, this was really hard work. This is what you've got to note down. You've got to be curious. You've got to cultivate your personality. When she's talking about her own work, there's a lightness of touch there. And she can see it from an ironic distance, which weirdly approaches the reader to her. She's, she's just honest with you and yeah. funny about her own work. She is very funny. So if you would like to read the collected stories of Lydia Davis, it's out with Penguin in paperback and worth buying. And what is your music recommendation? What have you been listening to in isolation? I have been getting into the work of, and please excuse the pronunciation, Haruomi Hosono, Japanese electronic artist, member of Yellow Magic Orchestra. Indeed amongst his other projects and I realise there's so much to get into and I've not really even really delved particularly deep into YMO as they're called but my entry was through him and so he's my starting point I'm working through his oeuvre at the moment and it's really fun joyful it's all over the place some of it's good some of it's bad but it's great it cheers me up at the moment and that's what I need. You particularly picked out his 1978 album, Philharmony, which I would characterise as Kraftwerk meets Japanese advertising music. I would say video games as well. There's some yeah. video game sounds in there. There's one track, it might be Birthday Party, where there's these like bells like that sound like they're from, I don't know, maybe a Japanese Buddhist ritual echoing in the background. And then you've got some video game sounds over the top and then cut up, sped up voices. And I just thought, I don't really know what this guy's doing, but I love it. I love that he's doing it. He's quite, quite mad, isn't he? I suppose the first thing to say is that still, even to quite a lot of music nerds, which I think we both qualify as, Japanese music is pretty opaque. There's still not that much written about it here in the West. There are a few artists, I guess, that make best of lists like Boredoms and Cornelius. And is that really about it, maybe? Well, yeah. I think uh, Hosono's some of his more famous albums, but they got releases in US and UK from Light in the Attic, the record label, in the last, yeah, five 
or 10 years. And so I think if I'm at the stage where you're at the cusp of a new enthusiasm and you're you're so happy that there's so much more stuff out there to, to get into, and that's nice. I'll probably be like deadly bored of it in about six months' time, but my eyes are open, my ears are open to Hosono. It's a huge scene, and I suppose what people always say about Haruomi Hosono is that he and Yellow Magic Orchestra are the Japanese craftwork. They're the big innovators for electronic music in Japan. And Japan has a huge history of pop music that it gets during the American occupation, and it has what is slightly amusingly called the Ereki boom, which is electric guitar, it's called Ereki, and then they have beat music. And I really like a lot of that stuff. There are some great compilations of, of that sort of thing available, especially a guy called Takeshi Tarauchi is one of my big faves. And then the impression I get is that Hosono, who's already active and doing a lot of stuff, comes along with Yellow Magic Orchestra and kind of creates all this crazy, weird electronica that really is the beginning of what I guess we in the West think of as the crazy Japanese sound and that kind of patronising way that Western people tend to talk about Japan. And I think quite a few people won't consciously have heard Harumi Hosono, but he's on the Lost in Translation soundtrack. He soundtracked some of the Miyazaki movies. So he is there on the periphery of listening habits for a chunk of, of people in the West. Yeah, so when I when I first got into him a month or two ago, he didn't feel new. I mean, he wasn't a name that I'd heard before, but it felt like something I'd heard before. At least I had some stepping stones towards his music, and that's presumably because he has his fingers in so many pies, and I had heard his stuff before, or at least people who have been influenced by him. If you had to pick one track off Phil Harmony to recommend, what would it be? Two tracks. You can um, have two tracks. Okay, for... I wouldn't, don't want to say weirdness, but the interesting collage of sounds and birthday party, I find really interesting in that respect, what it's doing, the, di- the sounds from the future and the past and the rhythms involved there. That's great. As an absolute banging pop tune, Sportsmen is great. It's the poppiest thing on that album, but it's, you can't help but smile. Almost anyone, I think, could listen to that song and find it impossible not to enjoy it. It is a truly lovely song, but it's quite a poignant happiness. You know? It's melancholy. I think it is yeah. someone pining, but with a smile on their face or seeing, try to have a stiff upper lip, maybe. It makes you want to be a good sport. There we go. So before Sophia and I get back to doing our 1,012 sit-ups and standing for hours with our faces pressed to the window, looking at a world that's no longer going by. We want to take a moment to thank everyone helping to tackle the current crisis. Biggest thank you, as always, has to go to all the frontline medical staff in the NHS and other health services around the world. We'd also like to thank grandparents, childminders and teachers. All of the people who are normally around to help working parents care for their children, but aren't currently available in the usual way. We already knew we should be thanking you more, but this situation has highlighted just how much. David, is there anyone you'd like to thank? I will repeat what you just said and maybe put it as maybe those people who were unskilled workers before this and who are now key workers might be valued a bit higher on the other side. I hope so. That's all from the quarantine today. Join us next week when we'll be talking to Siobhan Sparks McNamara. But for now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. See ya from me. 
Outro. This is the outro of our podcast. Outro. Stop listening.